G'day everyone, welcome back to another episode of Spark Your Fire. I'm your host, David Sheen, and as always, the myth, the man, the legend, John. How are you? Hi there, David. That's... Good Friday. Yeah, quite an introduction. I'm, I'm, I'm well. Uh, how are you doing? Good, mate. Good. Good to have you on as always, mate. Um, you know, I think this podcast will be so bland if it's just me talking all the time. So I'm just so <laughs> grateful to have your input. And I know that's why most listeners are here is to listen to you <laughs> rather than me. Oh, that's because <laughs> so we good. throw the odd conspiracy theory out there. Uh, you got you to gotta give, the, give the people what they want. The controversial part, I guess. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Anyway, um, welcome listeners. So thank you guys for joining us again. Uh, a couple of interesting topics that we want to cover today, but I guess let's just kick off with the July cash rate decision uh, because mm. that's, as they all say, you know, the the rate that stops the nation, you know, <laughs> in a sense. Uh, so yes, uh, so RBA has confirmed that uh, we are holding rates for July on 4.1%. So we're not, there's no increase, which is, Probably a good, yeah, good, good side in a sense. Um, but yeah, I, I think uh, the minutes haven't been out yet. But um, I guess looking from the initial press conferences in terms of what Governor Lowe has said, um, it's one of those ones that um, so last so last month feels more like an insurance policy basically, um, and and this month. Uh, it's more about uh, protecting the economy. I think they're starting to get a bit more concerned about the more, the higher the rates. Um, now it's really going to start the economy. And we all know that we've been walking on a very narrow path to make sure that we can actually get through without, you know, try to balance out the the mortgage payers as well as getting the economy without people losing too much job. Um, so I think uh, it was a decision this time to just make it a bit of a pause, um, collect the data again, especially I think the quarterly inflation data um, that's going to come out for the last three months and then assess to see whether there's any potential further rate rise that's still required. So in essence, I think it's just a, um, a, a bit of wait and see approach at the moment to see that just wait for a bit. Uh, you know, we will let, we'll let the, um, uh, the the increases the four percent that has already taken place to sink in for everyone, give everyone a bit more time, and now we want to uh, we want to see further data to see whether there's any need for further rate rises. The tone still hasn't changed as much though. I mean, they will still they will still keep it to say they are we might still need to increase the rate in the future. Like they'll never say never to be honest. Um, yeah. <laughs> right? They will always put that clause on there to say uh you know the further highs could be warranted, but then again, uh that will be subject to how the economic data pans out. So um anyway, it's I think it's a it's a short relief for the mortgage uh owners at the moment uh for another month. But uh John, I don't know what do you think at the moment? Uh, well, it's not much to say, I suppose. Alan Greenspan, the old Fed chairman, used to say that if I've made a statement and you've understood what I've said, I haven't done my job. So, so central bankers are sometimes deliberately quite obscure, mm. uh, and they like to keep all their options open. So, I think you know, increasing rates from here and decreasing rates from here is probably equally likely. And if we, if the market's placing bets, they're they're not doing their job because they're supposed to be obscure. Uh, it's good. It's it's. I, I like the pause approach. I, I like. I mean, I've always said that if I was an alien coming down from. Uh, from Mars and I landed on Earth and I looked at the economy, I'd say, well, the big problem here is that your interest rates are too low. So I'm pleased that that's been rectified to some degree. I, th I think it happened too quickly. And I think that 
that that's a problem and i i don't think we've seen the end of the 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 problems that will come from raising interest rates as quickly as they have done it but I, I'm pleased. You know, the pause to me is like uh, it's like waiting before you go back to the buffet table after you've had a big meal. I think it's good to it's good to let the body digest the interest rate increases. Um, the, the speculation now is whether they're done. Like, is this is this it? Mm. And uh, look, what I th- here's what I, I think that there's one more rate rise, and I think it will happen in the next two months. Uh, Governor Lowe's last he's leaving his post at the RBA, I believe in September. Uh, and I think that in looking at the two-year yield, if the two-year yield is the is the, the North Star for interest rate policy, uh, the overnight rate's currently 4.1%, the two-year yield's 4.3% and a bit. So they probably will raise rates one more time before uh, Dr. Lowe leaves. And that that would be my, my guess. It's hard. And and I still, and then I think the second half of the year is probably going to be very different because I think that these uh, resetting of the rates are start, going to start to have an impact. Mm. I actually think that they've probably killed inflation. They've probably done it, but because all the the data is lagging, and because what the number that they quote is annualized uh, inflation data, there's all the high inflation from the previous twelve months. That is still going to be lingering in the data, so I don't think that yeah. there's any rate cuts for 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 at least six months. But I think there's some pain to come, and I think there's one more rate yeah. rise. Yeah, no, I think you're 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 pretty much spot on, mate. I think um, certainly we the, we've passed the peak inflation, uh, but the question now just comes down to: Are we heading? Are we bringing it down fast enough? I think that's what yeah. that's what the RBA. I think it might be the the month or the before. That's the tone that they're saying. We're increasing because the trend or the inflation trend is not dropping down to the target mm. level within our 2024-2025 range. In fact, it's more 2025 now. So that's why they are putting it up uh, again uh, as an insurance policy. But whether that was too much or whether that would still allow us to kind of keep <laughs> keep the economy on the even yeah. keel is uh is, is going to be an interesting uh observation i think the quarterly inflation data will certainly give us a lot more insight um and i think that's going to come out end of this month uh from memory so um yeah that will have a big impact yeah there's a lot of the speculation is like because i think broadly most people would agree with us that inflation the inflation has been more or less broken and that's going to be trending down and, and we're going to be two percent within a year let's say mm-hmm. and then the question becomes uh, when do they start bringing interest rates down or will there be a second spike up in, in inflation like there was in the 70s? Yeah. Here's why I think that that's not going to happen. I think the 70s are really, every every time there's inflation, they go, oh, it's the 70s again. And here's why I don't think that's going to happen. Firstly, um, uh, so the first reason why is there's a lot more debt now. So we're a lot more interest rate sensitive. They don't need to take interest rates up to 20% to, to kill inflation. They can take interest rates to 5% and and that the economy is going to be in a very different position. So we're lots of debt, very interest rate sensitive uh, now compared to the seventies. The other probably more important factor why they can't do, well, there's probably not going to be another upswing in inflation is uh, that the demographics are very different. So we're a much, much older society and the baby boomers in the late seventies and early eighties were all turning 30. So they're all getting married and they're all Mm. uh, buying their houses and all that, that sort of stuff. And so there was this massive sort of, we always talk about the basketball moving through the hose. I don't think so. 
I really think once they kill inflation, uh, Grant Cardone said that within a year we're going to be begging for inflation, and he he reckons we've way overcooked the inflation increases, uh, the the interest rate increases. So. Mm. Yeah, I just don't see a, a second spike up in inflation. I think maybe they've overdone it within interest rates, but we'll, we'll see. We'll see. I think we certainly hope that's the case. Um, yeah, I mean, there's already a lot of people that's hurting out there. Mm. Um, we at, Even at the current 4.1% cash rate level, I can't fathom how it's going to be if, if it does hit the 5% level. Yeah. So, yeah. But um, look, at I think the equation just comes down to how quickly it brings us down, like how quickly it goes back to the 2 to 3%. And maybe we will see, I mean, Greg Carter is obviously looking at the US uh, inflation data, slightly different to Australian data to that degree. So um, we'll see uh, how, how it pans out. But, um, Indeed. Yeah, no, I think it's good. It's good. It gives everyone a bit of breather, like you said, you know, before they go back to the buffet table um, <laughs> again, uh, depending on which buffet table they want to go to. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, a bit of relief. So uh, that's, uh, that's, that's good for the mortgage owners. Yep. Now, um, how does this tie in to the core logic data that we're seeing for July, I guess, to a, to a degree? So, um, well, sorry, this is a retrospective one. So the, mm. we're looking backwards at the moment. So the, the the July data basically gives us what the period for June. So the core logic data that we've got released on the 3rd of July covers up to pretty much end of June uh, mm. at this stage. Um, and um, we are still seeing growth uh in terms of the property price values but uh i think the key headline is the growth is slowing so it's it's basically starting to turn um essentially and we can see that across multiple cities in terms of it's not it's not going up as quickly as the how they used to be uh in that sense although having said that the numbers are still fairly strong mm. that's uh yeah that's 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 what we're seeing with um certainly up to about five percent for last quarter so if you annualize that that's 20 percent, which is it's, it's not mind-blowing if i uh yeah in, in the current in the current environment uh right so mm. don't even know how to how, how to explain that um melbourne though melbourne's an interesting story and i think we picked melbourne because we had a we had a bit of a chat off air on this as well um yeah. the melbourne median value as at 30 of june 2023 is about seven hundred and sixty two thousand dollars if you compare that to Brisbane, which yeah. is sitting at $725,000 median value, there's only a gap of about 40, in fact, less than $40,000 in terms of that median. Now, traditionally, that spread isn't this close. So, you know, I think we we kind of we kind of both agreed that Melbourne could be presenting some really good values uh potentially moving forward for investors. John? Yeah, I'd need to I need to do my Melbourne to Sydney ratio, but I agree with you. I think that Melbourne right now is the probably, probably, and we'll do an episode on this, but probably the most undervalued capital right now. Mm. Uh, it, 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 you know, it, it was on parity with, with Sydney, say three or four months ago, but it really has been underperforming. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of about 15, 16 years ago during the the mining boom when uh, Perth prices were the same prices as Sydney prices. Yeah. And and in a sense, in the sort of hierarchy of, of values, Perth shouldn't be the same price as Sydney um, unless there's some sort of economic anomaly like a mining boom. And 
Melbourne and Brisbane shouldn't be the same price either. In the, in the sort of the hierarchy of values, Melbourne should be more expensive. So, uh, so you would expect to see that diverge. Melbourne should should grow faster than Brisbane, and and that would correct itself that way. But it's interesting to see that. Yes. Uh, so yeah, look, uh, I think we'll probably do the uh, the ratio video. I don't know, sometime soon. Uh, but uh, when John's got a bit of time, I say. <laughs> but yeah, I do I do anticipate that, you know, using the comparison ratios, it will Melbourne would probably prove to be the most cost, you know, got the got the um, yep. cost price at the moment. Yeah. Um but yeah, uh that's um that's definitely one of those things. Uh I think there's actually a couple of headwinds though, speaking of Melbourne. Um, mm. you know, we also touched on this. Um couple of headwinds in terms of investors uh entering in melbourne um because i believe they've actually put in place or the 2023 2024 budget they've actually put in place a bit of surcharge in fact i think it's called COVID surcharge um so they've reduced the land tax threshold from 300k to 50k so in other words pretty Mm. much all investors will now have to pay land tax um and um, so that's going to impact a lot of people. Uh, and traditionally, the rent is already fairly low for Melbourne. So, you know, you're talking about a low gross, gross yield in addition to the annual land tax. That's the threshold being lower, which means now pretty much all investors have to pay a land tax. That's a double whammy for property investors looking to get into Melbourne. So the other side of the argument might be, yes, John, it's proving to be good value. However, with interest rate at 6 to 7% at the moment and gross rental return getting even lower because of the new annual rent, mm. is actually a good time or does, is it worthwhile? Because it's going to be a lot of cash flow negative properties in Melbourne uh, in a sense. So Yeah, great point. Uh, n- no idea on timing and and I think you're, mm. you're you're quite right. I mean, capital capital flows to where it's treated the best. That's why... The United States became very rich. It was very friendly to 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 capital. Uh, Australia's been the same historically, uh, and within the states, you know, right now um, Victoria doesn't have a particularly uh, capital friendly government, and but but governments are temporary, so uh, the, these things correct. But you, you're right; it, it, these surcharges and the, this sort of extraction process from the from the citizens that that will weigh on weigh on the property market. But again, the, the people are moving through institutions, and uh, Melbourne historically is clearly cheap right now. Yeah, yeah. So it's worth worth looking at, I guess. Mm. Um, other numbers: so Brisbane um, doing fairly consistent, still one point three percent for the month, quarterly three percent. Adelaide consistent, 09 percent for the month and two point one percent for the quarter. Perth zero point nine percent for the month and two point eight percent for the quarter as well. Speaking of Perth, I think it might be worthwhile touching. Uh, anecdotally, I'm hearing that it's very, very hot on the ground at the moment. Most investors are looking at Perth purely for cash flow or affordability side of things. Right. Um, yeah, it's because people's borrowing capacity right now. So, you know, um, so be careful if you are trying to enter into Perth at the moment because chances are, number one, competition is fierce. Number two, there's no stock, which we will also mm-hmm. touch on a lot. Um, no stock. And a lot of demand for investors uh, driven in the Perth market. So um, be prepared. If you are going to enter into that market, there's going to be a lot of competition. You're likely going to have to pay a lot higher prices and you're going to have to act very, very quickly uh, in a sense to to win anything. So uh, that's my um, that's probably my key two cents 
for this month on Perth. That's good. <laughs> um, okay, so stock levels actually. Um, John, I know you uh, you you've you've looked into this uh, a bit for us. Um, stock levels remains to be very very low. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think you've you've looked into the same time last year because you're wondering. Was it also like a shortage of about 20% last year? Uh, tell us a bit more about that. Yeah. So so, so in, in the latest data set, uh, the amount of stock is 20% lower than the same time last year mm-hmm. and 26.4 below the average of the last five uh, five years. So we're 20% below the, the same time last year. That's Australia-wide. It's, it varies per capita. 20% below the, the same time last year. What we did, as you as you rightly said, David, is we went back to this time last year to see if we were down this from the year before. So if I go back to the 2022 data, we were down 24.4% for Australia uh, and 25% for the capitals. So 20% down off last year and then 24% off the year before. The, the amount of stock is about 40 to 45% below where it was two years ago. Mm. 40 to 45%. So, and there are more of us. There are more houses and there are more citizens. There are more people and and so on. There's more capital looking for a home. Yep. So when you've got 45% fewer houses over the last two years, uh, no wonder, no wonder prices are, are rising. Uh, there's, even with the demand destruction that comes off doing 13 interest rate increases, 40, 45% fewer properties to buy. It's very difficult to... to rebalance that but that that's the market doing the market's thing the market is rebalancing supply and demand so demand is way down and so supplies is reducing to meet demand but yeah so this time last year the core logic report said 24.4 percent down for australia in terms of new listings that's that's huge and that's the key reason why the prices at the moment are still going very very strong right yeah. because you know, like we touched on this a few times as well. Uh, we're rising interest rate, reducing borrowing capacity. Why is prices still continue to be pushed up and up and up? This is basically the main contributing factor uh, mm. is the, the, the low stock level. And it's been consistently this case for the last, I don't know, um, since, like you said, 12 months ago. So for the last 12 months, it basically just has been keeping even lower uh, in, in that case. So, not many stocks available for people to buy. Demand is pretty much on average uh, across the five-year period, uh, as far as I'm, I'm aware, from CoreLogic yep. data. Um, so, yeah, we are effectively seeing about like a 40-odd percent in comparison to two years ago, right, in terms of the stock level. So pushing it up. Um, and, yeah, so the amount of competition is what's really driving up uh, the prices. And I think, John, you know, you've obviously been keeping tab on the, on the, on the Sydney markets. You can tell that... It's it is really just comes down to competition, you know. Uh, most people, it, it, what do you think of the fear of missing out uh, factor at the moment? Are you are you seeing like you know when you attend auctions, are you seeing a lot of people kind of like, um, you know, like that fear of missing out feeling mm. is coming back again in the current market? Yeah, well, there's been both demand and supply destruction, so I'm not mm. seeing I'm not seeing a feeding frenzy at these auctions. You know, 2021 it was a feeding frenzy. There was very high supply. Uh, and and very high demand and and I'm not seeing that but I'm not I'm I'm seeing consistently prices go over the reserve um, I'm also seeing you, you, yeah uh, 
the vendors are wanting to go to market. And actually what I've seen just in the last four weeks is that the vendors have woken up to the price reset higher. So now they're realizing, you know, the, the place across the road sold, let's say. So now my place is worth 300000 more than I thought it was worth. Mm. Uh, and I'm you, you. I have a very specific example in my head, uh, which I won't share. But uh, the 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 vendors have woken up in the last four weeks. The prices have risen materially, and they're actually not that far off the peaks mm. from two years ago. They're not at the peaks, but they're very close. So yeah, I think there's. So you asked about FOMO. Is there FOMO? Uh, no, there's not. There's no feeding frenzy in the demand side. But the, the if you're a motivated buyer you only have like one or two choices in your market there's not a lot of properties out there so you you'll you'll be uh um a buyer for for both of those available properties let's say yeah yeah just not many options basically so they're forced to in the current available stock to Mm. pick and choose from what's available um yeah. And the so, question the question now is what happens in spring? So we're we're in the middle of uh winter right now. It's bleak correct. and it's cold. And uh there's never much stock at this time, but 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 the agents I'm talking to don't think it will improve in spring. They think that the the supply will not come on board in in spring even though there are uh, s- some vendors who are starting to test the waters and say, "Yeah, we'll be ready for for, for the warmer months." it doesn't look like there's going to be enough supply that's going to come on board mm. uh, sort of September, October. So we'll have to wait and see, but this, this seems uh, set in at the moment. Yeah. Okay. All right. Which means the the price, the the, uphold, the, the uptight prices will probably hold on to its position, um, but just stay more flat, I guess, in, in, in that sense, isn't it? So, yeah. Okay. It's um, kind of listings, rents. What about the rental growth aspect side of things? I think we're seeing uh, the rental conditions have started to ease a little bit or the rental growth has started easing a little bit, although the annual change in rents is still very, very high. We're talking about, in particular, Sydney units at 18.8% um, annual change. That's that's a phenomenal number, I have to say, uh, basically. Um, but look, the, the trend is across all the cities except for Perth. Uh, I think all the cities have started to ease a little bit. Um, so they started to turn um, in that instance. And um, Perth is the only one that uh, in t- from the graph perspective still shooting up from the rental perspective. So rent, mm. I think rent's gro- rental growth there is still continuing, going to be continuing on for a little bit longer for units in uh, Perth. Uh, I'd also and, say yeah. I'd also say so. So Canberra is the other one that's out an outlier on the downside. So Canberra mm. ha, uh, house rent is down and it's flat for units. So every everywhere else is up, but uh, Canberra's Canberra's underperforming in rents. Sorry, so good. Yeah, yeah, no, that's okay. So good to be a uh, an apartment holder in in the current <laughs> city market. Yeah, at the moment, that's right, isn't it? That's right. <laughs> Although we might not see that much capital growth, but at least from a cash flow perspective, hopefully it helps helps uh, offsetting a bit of the mortgage mm. repayments. Mm. But you know that. what? In just in terms of units versus houses, and we will probably do some another data set conversation on this. But uh, if we look at the last couple of years, you for units, uh, they never boomed in 2021. They never crashed in 2022, mm. and they they're catching a bit of a bid this year but not as much as houses they've actually proved but but 
underlying that, they've had the biggest rental increases. So total returns, even though there's a bit been a bit of volatility, they've been far less volatile than houses. And the total returns have been quite good. I mean, particularly on the rent side. So real estate is doing what real estate has always done. It's actually fascinating to see. We're still, you know, getting 5% growth per year in units on average and 7% growth per year on average for houses. And the you're getting inflation. There's been a big inflationary catch up on rent. So mm. rents lagged CPI over the last 10 years and now they're catching up. So over long periods of time, these averages just assert themselves. That's true. The the rent, uh, the units feels like uh, a bit like a uh, slow and steady type mm. of uh, approach in, in Sydney, that is. Um, can't say for all the markets, but uh, it certainly feels that way. You know, it's in a sense, it's like Adelaide, actually. Um, <laughs> Adelaide has been pretty much consistent for, I don't know, 1% to 2% kind of every year uh, beforehand true. for houses. And now it's started to wake up. So uh, I think the affordability is going to play a big equation moving forward, mm. um, especially in the current environment where borrowing capacity has reduced about 30 to 40%. So most people can probably only afford buying in units uh, or apartments or forced to be only be able to buy units and apartments. And therefore, especially in the pocket of, I don't know, 700 to a belt and meal, um, that's kind of the affordable pocket in Sydney terms. And that's where most of the units are kind of lying in terms of its purchase prices. So. Um, yeah. Now, um, any other things you want to cover from that report, John? Anything else I missed? No, no. It's, a, it's all about supply. It is. I think that's the the key. The key, yeah, the key metric there is still the supply is the main issue here, isn't it? So, okay. Um, all right. Well, that's uh, let's jump into uh, a bit of a topic of discussion for this for this week. I guess um, we've been talking about interest-only repayment and principal and interest repayment for a while. And I know with the high-rate environment right now, a lot of people are contemplating whether they should be continuing on their P&I repayment or they should be looking at switching over to an interest-only repayment to help alleviate the cash flow perspective. Because as you can imagine, it's very, very difficult to hold a property portfolio in the current 6% to 7% mm. interest rate um, especially when you have multiple property portfolios, um, even make it even harder. Um, so I guess the question comes down to, should you be looking at taking on, uh, let's say, you know, I guess two sides of the equation. First of all, if you're getting new debt today or if you're purchasing new property, should you be sticking on P&I or interest only? And second part, I would say, is for your current portfolio, if you are, if you are, property portfolio owner today, should you be looking at changing your investment portfolio to interest only, or should you still keep them on a PI level? I think right. that's the two key discussion points we'll touch on today, John. <laughs> and look, uh, we haven't spoken about this. So just for our yeah, listeners, yeah. this is very much live, right? Okay. I'm, I'm pushing <laughs> these questions out. We haven't had any script or anything like that. I'm just coming up with these questions and I thought they would be good discussion points um, yep. in terms of Given that's that's gives our uh, listeners a bit of indicators and pointers in terms of what we think. Yep. Yeah. So we're, and we're talking investment properties now. So investment not, properties. Not, okay. So so I'm very pro P and I. I'm very pro paying off principal because I'm a bit old fashioned in general and uh, and and I, I like to own the properties forever. I want to own the properties forever if I can. So mm-hmm. I really so firstly paying off the debt makes it more 
possible for you to not have to have an exit that involves selling later on. Now, in real estate, a lot of leverage, uh, and broadly speaking, the first 15 years of a 30-year mortgage, you're servicing interest, and in the second 15 years, you're buying the house, right? So so it, it can be demoralizing, and, and what what you want to do as a buy and hold investor mm. is to break through that 15 year barrier because then you're, you're, you're in, in a good spot, but you've got to get there and you've got to be able to service it in the meantime. And the first 15 years, the first 10 years is not, are not easy um, unless interest rates are dropping. So I'm a big fan of P and I um, when you first buy an investment property, you're at 80% LVR. Now, if the the value of that you're actually at you, you're actually uh, probably a bit over that because you've borrowed to, for stamp duty. So overall, mm-hmm. you're at let's say eighty three percent LVR. Okay. And from a, a the perspective of your net worth, how wealthy you are, you want to get that LVR down, right? So so you want to get your equity up and you want to get your LVR down. So the early years is actually quite important to start paying off your principal because if if the value of the property goes down. You might be at 85% LVR, 90% LVR. So all of a sudden you become quite high risk and you can't refinance at 90% LVR. So the first couple of years, it's important to pay off principal. And I think you can put it on, and what we've done is we've put um, our debt on interest only later on when the LVRs are at 30%, 25% and the pressure's off. But in those early couple of years, you actually want to start um, you want to give yourself a buffer such that if the price of the property falls and it will every say five or six years, mm-hmm. that you're still okay. And again, remember you're starting the ownership journey at about 83% uh, loan to value ratio LVR. So you're not comfortable until you're under 70% and you've got to start by yes, paying off some principal. So that's, that's, that's my view. And I think you can take your foot off the accelerator later on. Uh, when it cash flows and you've got a lower LVR, but what what do you think, uh, David? And yeah, look, I've, I think um, I, I've got an opposing view to you, which is why mm. it makes this uh, this yeah. discussion interesting. Uh, but first of all, I think I want to clarify that you can't actually borrow for stamp duty. So the lenders wouldn't allow you to do that. Uh, what you're referring to here might be you take equity out to pay for stamp duty. And in that oh. case, then yes. But you know, if you if you go up to the bank, if you ask them, can I can I leverage the property and borrow against stamp duty as well? They will say no. Okay. So uh-huh. I think it's important to distinguish that. Now, in terms of my stance, um, I can understand where you're coming from, John. Absolutely. Uh, you are trying to de-risk for the first couple mm-hmm. of years and pay down the debt. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think there's a couple of things to note here. Uh, number one, the uh, a lot of my clients, when they're purchasing their first property, they are looking to be able to build their portfolio fairly quickly because you want to yeah. be able to accumulate. Uh, during the accumulation stage, you want to basically reserve all your resources to be able to accumulate as much as you can, right? So, And uh, most people, when it comes to borrowing capacity versus cash or savings, their cash is going to run out first, generally speaking, because, mm-hmm. you know, we can structure the loans so that way they can go to tier one, tier two, tier three lenders. That way they can still got enough borrowing capacity to be able to buy their second, third, fourth property potentially. Okay. Probably less people in today's environment, but by having, by going on an interest only loan, it allows them to be able to reduce at least the initial 
repayment, which means they can put more into their pocket, which means they can save up their deposit quicker to get into their second investment property. So it comes down to their mm. goal. You know, if someone is looking to be able to build four properties uh, in, say, five years, then having an interest-only repayment on the initial loan is probably going to help them save up quicker than in comparison to the PNI repayment to a degree. Okay, so yep, yep. that's that's the first thing. Um, second thing, I guess, from a principal perspective, I'm a big advocate in terms of. Um, I mean, we we all we all are big advocate in terms of holding on property for a long time. Now, the reason why we want to hold the, the property for a long time is because we let inflation to eat and erode away our debt, basically. Okay, mm. so yes, uh, you know, we, you certainly want to control your risk to a degree, uh, you know, and if you, I guess, if you keep it long enough, you'll find that uh, in 10 years time, 20 years time, even though the debt level, and if you don't touch it, the debt level may initially see as quite significant, but in 10, 20 years time, it will see it will be seen as insignificant by that time because, you know, the money keeps losing value over time. So you basically help accumulate as much as you can and you hold them on as long as you can in order to let the time or inflation to do the hard work of paying down the debt for you across the long term, in a sense. Okay. That's the second thing in terms of from my personal investment principle mm. strategy. The third thing is interest only does give you some flexibility in the sense that we can use uh, some non-bank tiers down the track to be able to help people accumulate further. So there's from a bond, that's just from a debt borrowing capacity perspective. Okay. So with a PNI repayment, when you hit certain threshold because your repayment's been too high, you're gone. You're out of the game. So if we structure them correctly, you could potentially it could be a difference between property three and property four as opposed mm. to property one and property two when you get locked down in property two. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's a that's from a borrowing capacity strategic perspective. And um interest only, like I mentioned, tying back to number one, you get to save up a bit more. Now, if you need to and if you like to, you can always, you can always put that extra capital into the loan, paying it down. You got the option to, but you're not mm. forced to, like as in PNI. Mm. Okay, and we haven't so talked about offsets yet. We haven't talked about offsets as well. Correct. So if you put, if you chuck on the offset account, then, you know, again, different story. So, mm. um, yeah, so I think that's one of the reasons why I'm kind of more pro uh, IO mm. uh, in that sense. But again, it comes down to um, each individual's goal. So, you know, I've worked with investors who just want, I just need two properties uh, fully paid off and then I'll be happy to live on that kind of mm. passive income. I said, well, perfect. First one, PNI, second one, PNI. Off you go, go and pay it off. Done. You'll be done in 20 years or something, right? So, yeah, yeah. but if someone comes to me and say, I want to be able to build a portfolio and have, I don't know, sounds vulgar, 100K passive income in 20 years time. Of course, the first thing is to be able to accumulate to that level and have enough asset base before you can even consider getting closer to that level of passive income that you want at a later stage of life. So that's my thesis. Yes. So I think, I think you're spot on uh, you know I, li I like how you sort of uh, caveated it with it depends on what the goals are and if it's like a rapid accumulation of assets but i would say if you're so it depends on how quickly you want to build up your asset base hmm. i would say if you want to buy one property every two or three years i'd be doing some p and i and then you drop the first one off into interest only and then move the first because i'm trying to 
de-risk the early years where you're very sensitive to price uh, reductions. Um, but if you're doing multiple asset purchases within a year or two, yeah, you can't even really do that with P&I. You'd need to you'd need to be on interest only. My, I, I de- I'm I'd be skeptical if that's even a good strategy, but I am supportive, broadly speaking, of going big into real estate. Uh, so, and I'd, one other thing I'd add is it depends on how old you are when you start. So I was I started young and went slow. Some people start late and have to go fast, and so that's when you know an interest only strategy probably works a bit better. But but I, I'm I'm really uh, kind of my view is very risk focused i think you quite correctly put your finger on that at the beginning it's like john's focused on de-risking a portfolio portfolio. de-risking the the debt and my view is always you come back to interest only later uh so it's just it's kind of that that question but but i'm in a situation where you know where you know, happy to have our property portfolio mature. Yep. So we have the luxury to do interest only now, but that's what's worked for us. It's like you go hard playing off the principal early and then you can park that process. Once you've got, once you're not at 80% LVR, mm-hmm. that, that that's the risk that you're trying to mitigate. Yeah. No, and, and I, and I can absolutely see your point there as well. I guess coming back to a point, you know, it really comes down to the age group of the mm. investor. You know, that was a key difference is if someone comes to me at 45 years old, I would probably say you need to start looking at some of the PNIs as well. You wouldn't mm. be a great idea to just keep everything on IO, especially if they do not have an owner occupier themselves, yeah. right? That's that's that will be very risky lending in that case. Mm. Um, but yeah, look, I, I was I was hypothetically assuming you know someone maybe in their late twenties wanting to start building out their portfolio. They got at least thirty years of working life ahead of them. Yeah, time is on their side. So in that case. IO could be a great strategy for them in terms of being able to help them accumulate, yeah. build that base, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but um, yeah, look, I, I, I think, um, it, it, and it really comes down to the investor appetite as well. Um, mm. You know, everyone is everyone is different. Um, and uh, I think in the, so so that's in the current in lending environment though, um, I have to say, John, it's very, very difficult to be able to, Build a property portfolio on a PNI repayment, especially in True. today's market, because True. of cash flow. You know, you're talking about six percent, and coming back to you as well, um, the you mentioned in the start, it, it takes about fifteen years, roughly, to kind of pay the interest, and then the next fifteen years is where you really pay down the principal. By the house, I, I agree with you basically. So the first, in fact, the first ten years, you'll probably see like most of your repayments going to paying down the principal, mm-hmm. so the interest and not the principal. So the principal literally remained very much the same for the first five to 10 years. And some people might be pissed off with that to a degree. Um, here's, another, here's another aspect, and it comes down to, again, it personalizes this question a little bit, but if you're a good saver, you can mm-hmm. go on interest only because you're parking your, uh, your buffer in your offset. Great if point. you're a bad saver and you spend everything, you, you kind of need to go on P&I because there's no other way to build up the buffer, you you, you need to go on P and I. So that I think there's there's that as well. Money attitude, absolutely. Money you know, attitude. I look at money attitude when you know are they a spender? Are they a saver? If they're good savers, I usually mm. go no problem with I O. But yeah, if they're spenders, I usually say let's put it on P and I. So that way, you know, they're yeah. forced to save to a degree, and by putting money, mm. reducing the principal will help them. Um, one thing as well, John, I want to discuss with you. So you mentioned about. 
um, earlier about the um, be able to refinance at, at, at like maybe at a second or first, first or second year stage. Now, if if they're not looking at selling or if their finance is in a straight, like is the price actually going to be or is the purchase price or the value of the property going to be applicable at that point in time, I guess? Well, are you saying that they would uh, assess the value at the purchase price because it was so recent? So if that say for example initially uh they they purchased at 80% in your using your example mm-hmm. um but we say we took 5 years interest only um if they basically just focus on accumulating and continuing on in that instance without having to shift the first lender or, or move them away from the first lender because usually when you start off you're on probably one of the major banks or top tiers anyway um so it wouldn't be too difficult to hold for a long time um so in that scenario um, why would you, I guess the question is, why would you need to look at refinancing uh, in, 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 in that scenario? If, if basically you're already doing, you're already, you know, it's pretty well kept in terms of repayments, et cetera, mm. et cetera. So, if you were to bring another property into the portfolio, that's right. That's, that's why. Yeah. 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 Okay. So if you're looking at releasing equity, et cetera, mm. et cetera. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. So here's, here's one other, one other aspect because we've we've moved from a very from one very particular interest rate environment into another very particular interest rate environment Correct. so we've got so the average uh borrower let's say with a big four has moved from 2.5 percent interest to 6.1 percent or something like that it's it's a material change mm-hmm. in the the interest rate landscape and it's a material change in the way we should be thinking about interest only in p and i um in a and it also sort of ties into when interest rates are low, we should have all been saving uh, because th- that was a, a once in a lifetime moment of 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 uh, of interest rates, saving or paying off principal. So my question is, mm. you know, should we should should we have been saying to people to pay off principal during those three or four halcyon years of low interest rates, or and is it more appropriate to go into interest only now? that interest rates are higher and, and so on? Oh, look, I think great question. Um, if you haven't owned occupied debt, last couple of years was a great time to be smashing mm. down that that home loan. That definitely the case, right? Uh, I think I've been smashing down my, my uh, P&I home loan for the last couple of years. So that's that's definitely helped. But from my interest, uh, I guess from an interest only perspective, um, my, okay, so my, my, my philosophy is this. If you've got own occupied debt, it should always be on principal and interest. So, and and the money should always be kept against the offset account in mm-hmm. that. Okay. Right. The only exception to that is if this is an interim home. So if you're looking at buying an apartment and you know this is not your forever home, then yes, you can probably keep it interest only. And then you can probably keep the offset account in there. So that way, you know, you reduce your payment, but you continue to save up the buffer. So that way, when you are looking to upgrade, you don't need to borrow as much. Ultimately, ultimately, the idea is to lower and reduce your non-tax deductible debt, the owner-occupier debt, uh, and to maximize your investment debt, mm. basically. Okay. Um, the second part of the equation is if you if you're currently struggling, then I would definitely say yes. Um, if and if you want to be able to hold on to the portfolio, look at changing the investment portion to interest only to help alleviate the cash flow perspective. Um and park the money in the offset account because right now with interest rate around 6%, you're actually not paying much principal at all. So by putting mm. those money in the offset account, 
it does help you paint down a bit more principle um, and to and to reduce your overall risk. Um, so that's that would be my take uh, at the moment, John. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. There's a big chunk of repayment and this little bit little bit of going to the principal. So, uh, so I, I agree with all that. Uh, you know, paying off having paid off principal also prepares you better for unexpected interest rate increases. Mm. So that's it. So they will be calculating interest off a lower balance because you did the right thing during the low interest rate period by paying debt off. But you're right. You know, if you, when you've got a large portfolio, you, you've got to triage your what you pay off and what you leave as interest only. Um, and you, you're quite right to say pay off your home loan. But the reason that you, you pay off your home loan is you, you want to pay off your most expensive debt first. So you want to pay off your home loan because it's not tax deductible. You want to pay off your credit cards because they're at the higher interest rate. And then you can have a think about one or two other uh, investment loans uh, if you wish. But uh, you're right. You have to rank and prioritize what debt you pay off and you pay off the most expensive debt first, which is usually your house. And from borrowing capacity perspective, that makes a lot of sense as well, right? Because mm. if you can remove that non-tax deductible debt component, in other words, that's a bad debt, because um, don't forget all the other good debts and investment loans can be tax deductible and add back to help mm. with your borrowing capacity. So it actually helps, you know, a lot of people who were have a fully owned home and then a couple of investment debt in that case you'll find that generally speaking, lenders are more willing to lend them a bit more mm. as opposed to someone who's heavily indebted with the owner-occupier debt and mm. now looking to build a property portfolio. So yeah. from a borrowing capacity, a number case, it makes total sense. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah. Now circling back to the question whether people should be saving the last couple of years, I totally agree. I think they should have been, but whether that was the reality or not, I don't know. I think <laughs> I think people are going back into the revenge spending because we've all been locked down during COVID for too long. Yes, we say half because we saved the hard because we don't have much anywhere to spend it apart from online retail. Mm. But um, that was a great time to be able to save up a good chunk of war chest and potentially pay down your home loan a lot quicker. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So I do agree with you. Well, as as Gandalf the Grey said, you don't always get to choose the time that you have. You All you can do is decide what to do with the, uh, the the time that you've been given or something like that, uh, Lord mm. of the Rings. Mm. Uh, so <laughs> you, you just you have to make the, the decisions based on the current circumstances. Definitely, definitely. So, uh, yeah. But, uh, look, I think that's that's great discussion. Mm. Thanks, John. I think uh, hopefully that gives our listeners a bit of uh, pointers and understanding. Uh, I think this is an interesting one I do want to bring up because I know, John, would you have a bit of an opposing view to me? And I know you've always <laughs> been very conservative when it comes to controlling yeah. risk i'm probably a bit more risk uh you're more risk averse than me uh sure. essentially so uh but uh i've got my i might got my less risky side too so <laughs> <laughs> all right uh well thank you listeners for now for joining us another week and uh as always um you know what we have uh spoken today are general in nature if you've got any uh specific um questions please do check with your accountants mortgage brokers, uh, financial planners, et cetera, before making a decision to uh, on your investment journey. But other than that, have a great week and uh, we will see you guys again in another episode of Spark Your Fire. John and David. <laughs>